It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 7th, 2021, the Reek the Whirlwind edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. under curfew, although I guess it's lifted for the day, but I will be back under it again tonight. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York, I think. Yes, you've, I'm in New York. Hello, John. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, it, I, you know, there's a lot, obviously a lot to talk about today. The mob. Uh, no, the, I can't imagine why you would feel that way. The mob of insurrectionists attempted a coup egged on by a president. The Democrats took control of the Senate. The pandemic is raging worse than ever. It was one of the worst days in American political history, American history, really, yesterday. And we are going to assess Wednesday. the damage. Uh, plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. There's a tweet from Damon Linker that I think captures some of what I feel about yesterday. Linker wrote, The danger of Trump's incapacity to accept his loss has never been that he would succeed in staying in power after losing the election. It was that he would tear the country apart, trying to turn the fantasy into reality. And that is, of course, Emily, what has happened. There's everybody was saying yesterday, oh, I never thought I would see this happen. Never thought this would happen. But of course, we should have known um, because all steps that we've taken down this terrible path with this impossibly horrible person as our president have led to where we ended up yesterday. Yeah, I think that's true. It was shocking. Whether it was surprising or not, and I think there will be a debate about that for a long time, some people were saying it was inevitable. And there were a lot of warnings on Parlay and Gab. Parler. I think Parler. Parler. Anyway. Not, fr- yeah, not the French uh, right pronunciation. Wing. <laughs> I, I, was, I guess that's what I was going for. Uh, and I failed. Yeah, there were a lot of warnings on right-wing social media. So in that sense, it shouldn't have been a big surprise. But I think it was just so shocking to see the Capitol breached, to see what felt to me like a desecration. I'm not a big symbols person, but my grandparents lived in Washington from the 40s until their deaths. And I realized I actually had a pretty deep attachment to the notion that there was a sacred for our democracy place, the Capitol, where we were going to see the machinery of democracy operate, I was really looking forward to it, given how much uncertainty there has been. And to have it so violently, disgustingly disrupted, I, I, I was really sad. Yeah, I mean, John, I think you, you, you and I both have covered things in the Senate. And, and they, if you get within like spitting distance first of all you couldn't spit down there you, you got, couldn't spit you, yes, if you got within yeah, if you like hailing distance of of the senate floor some some burly capitol police officer would would manhandle you and very firmly get you out of the way the idea that this this daniel boone with a viking helmet is is doing a rocky manifestation on the senate dais in the presiding seat of the senate is i mean it's it's beyond words it is beyond words, and, and un, uh, untangling all of its threads is important and hard to do because the first thing that comes to mind is the rioters who are taking selfies with the policemen, and that's not the way protesters were treated by uh, Washington police during the Black Lives Matter protests. So that's one thing that's kind of just immediately on my mind. The, 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 the other thing is, to Emily, to your point about symbolism, you know, one of the reasons we have these traditions and have all of this pomp and circumstance is that it affirms all these traditions and norms that we've been talking about having been shred for the last four years. Like they are the symbolic compulsory routines that are the visual version of the compulsory routines that we go through that holds democracy together. And so to physically see it 
desecrated is just the physical manifestation of what we've seen over the last four years. And we've been talking about this since election night. It's the it's the coming home to roost, not just of what the president was saying with respect to this specific day, um, lying to his supporters, then telling them to come to Washington. But it is the ugly flower of four years of questioning, you know, changing the very nature of truth, of enablers, uh, rewriting the obvious meaning of what the president says to be something more benign and essentially profiting from playing footsie with the forces that broke the windows in the Capitol uh, on Wednesday. That's John, that is a, that idea that this is the physical manifestation of the norm breaking that we've seen that has been mostly psychological or political or mental is that's a great that's a great metaphor, a great way to think about this. You know, I, I appreciate that. On election day when it was over, I I was in such a, you know, it's hard to deal with all this stuff when it's all coming over. But I used this weird expression about burning Democratic furniture. What I meant is the furniture of democracy, which is still a weird thing to say. But this is what I kind of was meant, which is yeah. when you allow you allow this to go forward, um, you end up burning the stuff that is at the very basic heart of the democratic process. And turns out that's what happened. Right. And it was so frustrating because there have been so many warnings along the way. And the enablers in the Republican Party who went down this road with President Trump and, you know, in the past week, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Marsha Blackburn, these senators, they are supposed to be leaders. And they were saying, you know, my constituents believe the election was a fraud. Well, they believe that because you're not standing up to them and telling them otherwise. And, you know, right wing media is absolutely to blame for this as well. For me, one of the most moving moments um, late Wednesday night was Mitt Romney saying yep. this from the Senate yeah. floor. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the president of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who were upset is by telling them the truth. And that, like from him, it just felt like, that is this crucial recognition that needs to break through. But then we just return to Republicans objecting to the election results from Pennsylvania and Arizona when there is just no evidence that would make that a viable, responsible thing to do. It is so, so deeply irresponsible. The best way you can show respect to these voters is to tell them the truth. The, the president, who cannot tell the truth under any circumstances— didn't do it. I, I think using the word enablers that you just used is a very weak word. These aren't enablers. I mean, I'm not sure what they, what's when a criminal conspiracy, what is it called? They're co-conspirators, they're collaborators. I mean, Ann Applebaum had this great piece some months ago about the what is it that causes people to collaborate? These are collaborators with a, a, a criminal, more than criminal enterprise, a seditious enterprise designed to destroy the very structure of how America is governed. So, I mean, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, I'm sure they will remain senators. I'm sure they will be reelected. I'm sure they will both run for president. It is entirely possible one of them will be president. But it's a sh national shame that they, they, and they should, they should be, they should be drummed, they should be expelled from the Senate. You know, it's a, an interesting question about collaboration because they are collaborating absolutely, but they are doing it in their own self-interest in a way that is, that I'm trying to think of the terminology because there's collaboration where everybody's in on the same thing. And then there's collaboration where people are working in their individual self-interest that just has the practical effect of being a collective effort to undermine democratic institutions. The, it may be a distinction without a difference, but I think the difference is, is, um, is somewhat interesting. But Yuval Levin had a great piece in the, the National Review about, yes. about the lie and one of the things that has irritated me so much about the supporters of the president who have created the permission structure 
to gloss over the things that he's done is that whenever you try to hold the president to a verifiable standard, and remember, this is the party that was most obsessed with maintaining standards in public life. When you try to hold the president to a verifiable objective standard, they would say, you're so out of touch. You don't understand that his supporters uh, think, you know, his supporters see him fighting for them as if that was the only important fact you needed to know which essentially meant that nothing that Donald Trump did could be wrong because his supporters validated it, which is the thing that would have made the founders spin in their graves with enough power to, to, uh, to keep the lights on in an entirely, in a Northeastern city. And yet that standard, the sort of Fifth Avenue standard, I can shoot someone and my supporters will still support me, overtook the president's uh, party, the Republican well, what's Party. What's also, we, also weird... I think everyone says, oh, he sees us fighting for them. And it, there's such a gap between that perception and the reality. I mean, he's been a terrible advocate for the causes that he wants. I mean, he's opposed things that would help his supporters. He fights for himself. And the inability of his supporters to separate his self-interest from their self-interest, it's, it's not unique. People always do that. They always they always misapply their self-interest or they, they get caught up in the fervor. But he doesn't fight for them. <laughs> he never has fought for them. That's what's so that's what's so sick about it. It's a it's a populism which serves not the populace but serves the the one. And we actually saw that yesterday when he said, "We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I'll be there with you." And then he was nowhere to be found, and they're all presumably in big trouble or they should be. And that's another thing we should talk about is consequences. I mean, to go back to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, is it possible that they miscalculated? I mean, I desperately want this to not be in their political self-interest, what they've done. What do you think about that, John? Well, I mean, I've been trying to uh, figure out this theory for the last few weeks about the market that Donald Trump has created that lives on well after him. And, you know, we've talked about the structural parts of this market for a long time, which is basically the, the support of conspiracy theories, the... the um, grievance politics that um, basically rallies people around identity, going back to David's point, you know, the, the, when, it's an, when your identity is wrapped up in the tribal fervor for Donald Trump, that he basically can do no wrong. And even if he does wrong by your economic interests, your association with him is at such a hardwired identity level um, that you're still uh, adhering to him. That market, which is partially, I mean, obviously, People adhere to him specifically, but the access to that kind of connection exists through uh, all of the grievance politics that the that Hawley and Cruz are joining in, and the others who were a part of that. That market has been created by President Trump, and it is and what it was, and I think it will still be, kind of the first contest for the 2024 candidate. And you'll see some who play in that market directly, and then you'll see those who play footsie with it. And you saw them playing footsie before the rioters when, when people would say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, well, they would either say one of two things. They would say, I'm not going to challenge the Electoral College or I'm, uh, because my hands are tied. In other words, they wouldn't say the president is wrong and lying about the election. They would just say, well, I'm going to vote with this because, because, you know, the process is going forward. What that allowed them to do is not criticize the president, stay in good standing with his people, but not go totally over to the Cruz camp. That can't happen anymore because playing footsie with that kind of unreality is what led us to where we are now. I mean, isn't it now shameful to be playing to that market? Like, doesn't the, I mean, is the Republican Party going to divide or uh, is it going to reject and expel this faction? I mean, look. Faction? Forty-five percent of Republicans supported the fucking riot. Well, also, what if shamelessness is the ante to get into the poker game? What if shamelessness and getting attacked because you've said something that's so out of bounds is proof that you're a member of the club? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I turned on. I I tried to watch Fox as much as I could endure last night, and when I turned yeah, on Tucker, it, it was you know shocking. It was you know it was the the, the you know these people are are legitimate patriots. Uh, yeah, it was such double speak too. It was all about how like anyone who ignores them, it's your fault. It, but there's so many other things to hit. But Emily, I I, I don't want to leave the point that you made and John hit on in the beginning. So it is the, the images that people showed of the police 
yesterday versus the police when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, which did not come anywhere near the Capitol, never threatened the Capitol, had no impact on the Capitol, but where there was a military, a massive paramilitary and military presence that ringed and protected the Capitol. It was that contrast was stunning. The police either opened the barricades or certainly didn't uh, resist the opening of the barricades by the crowd so that the rioters yesterday could could make it more get to the get closer to the Capitol more easily. Uh, you know, had there been even like one black person in that crowd, probably this they would have they would have started arresting people. What, what do we make of the fact that the, the police were so uh, welcoming of this? And I, I mean, I think the, the best excuse I've heard is they were protecting the members and they made a tactical decision like not to foment violence because they were trying to protect the, the members and they would resolve it peacefully after a while. And, you know, most for the most part, they did. There were not that there was one death and there don't seem to be that much other human damage. But of course, the the damage to the country is still profound. There were three other deaths from medical emergencies somehow involved in what happened yesterday. So it's actually four. I think they made a terrible error. I mean, obviously, they seem to have made a series of errors. I want to know where the orders were coming from. I can understand that they didn't want to use force. And then by the time they used tear gas, it was too late. There were too many people and they were overwhelmed. But why they were so ill-prepared why they opened those gates effectively to let people get so close to the Capitol, that just seems like it literally made no sense. Um, And it's really hard to understand how things escalated to the point that they did. I mean, I guess the what you can say is that the protesters became violent in the form of, like, the smashing of the windows, etc., after they had overwhelmed the Capitol Police. It was basically too late at that point. But I don't see how protecting, I mean, they were able, thank God, it's kind of amazing that nobody who worked in the building or was there for professional reasons was injured yesterday. So they did accomplish that. But, you know, to have guns drawn at the front of the, the door to the House chamber, like, that's a huge fail, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that door that they guns were pointed through is the door through which the president enters when he gives the State of the Union. I mean, the the symbolism here, the actual... The fact that Joe Biden's inauguration will now not just be a metaphorical cleaning up of the Trump years, but a literal one. The, the, the number of images, the fact that, th- that those were the steps on which the president uh, four years ago talked about American carnage. Uh, it turns out we just didn't know it was a promise at the time. It's just extraordinary. I think the um, if you think about the riots of the Trump presidency, Charlottesville, and you think about the protest in Lafayette Square and you think about these riots at the U.S. Capitol as just a way to think through this strain of the Trump presidency. Look at how he reacted in Lafayette Square. He pushed peaceful protesters seeking a hearing for the inequities in the American system and the way blacks in America are treated. He he shoved them aside using the force of the state and tear gas so that he could take a photo op to help his campaign. And then when rioters break through the Capitol to stop the democratic process, he says, we love you and your patriots. That disconnect, the putting of self over the country, has been a thread throughout the Trump presidency. But in this case, those, that is kind of the starkest two images for me uh, that, ex- that explain just how upside down this presidency has been. I mean, we have now a picture of someone holding a Confederate flag in the Capitol building. Emily, what are the what are the charges that people can get could face, and can they be, be be identified by social media by by news media postings? Because very few people were arrested day of. Re- retrospectively, what could they be charged with, and who would do the charging? Is it a federal crime? Is it something that because the, the Capitol, the Congress doesn't have charging power? There's no con- crimes against Congress. I mean, there must be like a list of federal crimes that are specific to federal property, if not the Capitol and Washington itself. But there was destruction of property. There was trespass, disorderly conduct, like, and there was violence. And there's a lot of images on social media. And they need to find those people 
not because, you know, we necessarily need to throw them in prison for some long term, but there have to be consequences. Like the guy who is, you know, that crazy guy standing in the set, like those, it, it needs to be clear that those people did not just walk away because otherwise there's no deterrence, right? This is like what you need arrests and prosecutions for. Right. So criminal trespass is a criminal offense. Is it presumably that's criminal trespass? I don't know. Yes, absolutely. That's criminal trespass. And I mean, I think a lot of people really destruction of property is going to be easy to get them on. There's a lot of that going on in those videos. Do you think that the government will go back and do this? I think that, um, yes, I think there will be an effort to find people who can be identified through those photographs. Yes. And there were U.S. attorneys in um, Ohio and Kentucky who said that really clearly that, you know, they're going to be looking for people for the pictures to see if there are people from their jurisdictions who they can prosecute. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen, who's the acting attorney general, also made a statement yesterday. And, you know, Joe Biden's administration is going to come in in a couple of weeks and to some degree will probably be left with some of this mess to clean up. Do you think uh, there has been an infiltration of police forces by I'm not saying white supremacists, but do you think there is that the problem of the sympathy of police forces and police people for Trump and Trump's allies is a problem and that we saw that in action yesterday or is that an overread? Well, it is certainly true that there are police unions and forces that are heavily pro-Trump and have been really clear about that. So you see that in public statements from various police groups in New York City, for example, that are very much out of um, line with the politics of many New Yorkers. And that's been true around the country. I know nothing about the Capitol Police as a force, nothing about their politics. So I don't want to get out over my skis on that one. Do either of you think that there is that this has a silver lining. I hate the idea. I hate the theory of heightening the contradictions. I don't think that violence ever causes people to, you know, recognize and flee violence. Violence generally causes more violence. I mean, in some ways it makes people fearful of disruption, but then actually it gives people permission to go cause more disruption. That said, do you think any of this causes the regular, very conservative Republicans to act more responsibly, to have a Mitch McConnell who is a very institutional person uh, who was also obviously unsettled by what happened to have him behave more responsibly around this rhetoric? Or do you guys think like, this is no, this is just a, this is just a step in a bad direction. It doesn't help us. It won't help heal. It will just give permission for the next group that wants to do something similar. I think the answer could be yes. I mean, let us stipulate that they are coming to whatever reckoning they're coming to very, very late. And Mitch McConnell bears responsibility. So does Mike Pence. But it was a relief to hear them very clearly say this is completely antithetical to conservative values. And I do think this is a wake up call. Like this cannot be good for the Republican Party as a political brand that now this is pasted all over them. I think that in some institutional way that you were just talking about, David, like this must have been just like ripped a hole in the heart of a lot of Republican members of Congress as well as Democrats. Like this is their work home and it was totally violated. So I do have some hope that this is the kind of wake up call that allows people to actually be responsible in a way that I'm sure, you know, look, these people privately have scorned and had cont- expressed contempt for Trump for years. And now they actually have a way to try to separate themselves from him. Plus, the timing is convenient. He's leaving. You know, I think the I think the market still exists. So I think Trump goes, but people will still play to the market and people will find ways to play to the market and and have plausible deniability um, in not doing so. And so I think the screen, um, you know, has to be tighter. In other words, there's a danger of jumping at shadows when somebody says something and you immediately, uh, shout them down because they, you, you say they're, they're blowing a dog whistle. On the other hand, there've been a lot of dog whistles and all the damn dogs came home. Uh, and so the tolerance for, I didn't see the tweet or, oh, that's not what they meant, 
a lot of us were intolerant about that for a while. The, the tolerance for it has to go away. And I don't know what it's not going to go away inside the Republican Party because that requires painful self-examination and no human wants to go through that. So there will be a huge desire to write President Trump off as some idiosyncratic, crazy person. But what I spent a lot of time wrestling with in the damn book was you can't ignore the structural things that are a part of his presidency and the things that were allowed by others. Those forces all still exist. And until, you know, when the president said that the, the, the election was stolen when he was telling everybody to go home, that leaves the thorn in the shoe. I mean, that's the moment where, where the newly awakened Republicans should have said that is a lie. He is continuing to tell the lie that got us here in the first place. That lie must stop. The election wasn't stolen. Joe Biden is the president. And I mean, say it in force. Mitch McConnell did say it, but I'm but this has to be a sustained response to this kind of thing. And so whether this is a hot stove moment, you know, I'm I'm skeptical, although everything in my body makes me want to believe that that it is. One last thing, Mike Pence showed unwavering loyalty to this president in thousands and thousands of instances. Taking off the race. And exactly. (laughs) No one has been more loyal to President Trump than Mike Pence. (laughs) And the president put a bullseye on him for his loyalty. I mean, it is, it is, I I hate this expression, but it is Shakespearean. Um, Yeah. uh, They talked about hunting him down yesterday. Yeah. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You also, of course, support the great journalism Slate does, and it's only $35 for your first year. So please, if you're in a position to become a member, I hope you do. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Our bonus segment, we're going to step way outside of the issues of the moment, and we're going to consider a kind of conundrum question about medicine and health and personal choice. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let's continue with the tragedy of yesterday and in particular turning to the president, John. Uh, He is president for 13 more days at this point. Um, We have a pandemic that is killing nearly 4,000 people a day, a vaccine program that is not going super well, a Russian hack, which is perhaps the greatest act of of espionage and sabotage in espionage history, certainly in modern American history, which we are only just getting a sense of the scope. There was yesterday news that the Justice Department itself was breached in that hack. And a president who is in a stage of uh, madness of King George and fomenting violence against another branch of government. Can there be a Goldwater goes to Nixon moment, what would that even be? And 
does it even matter? Like, or should should it just be the cabinet and and the White House staff protect him by not carrying out his orders? Protect us. Protect us. Excuse me. In the fever brain thing that's been happening since election day, I at one point you mentioned Goldwater going to Nixon, um, Goldwater and uh, and uh, Senator Hugh Scott, the Minority Leader in the Senate, and the House Minority Leader Rogers went to Nixon to say you've lost support in your party. They went to his doorstep yesterday. Literally, the president went to Congress's doorstep. I think the 25, 25th Amendment, which people have talked about, and apparently, according to Margaret Brennan at CBS, who broke the news, there there were discussions about bringing the 25th Amendment question to Pence. I think now that the president has said that there will be a peaceful transition, probably steals some of the steam with respect to those in the cabinet who would have to vote in a majority to um, enact Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. So I bet that with 13 days to go from the day we're recording, um, that it probably won't happen. I think Every time somebody thinks they've found bottom with President Trump, they have found a new bottom. So I wouldn't predict calm over the next um, 13 days. But but David, you make the crucial point, which is we are in serious, serious times. There's a lot of work to be done. And so to have everything in such a destabilized state is awful. And the only silver lining perhaps might be that we might be in a point where everybody realizes we've gotten to such a bad pass that there might be a little more cooperation than there would otherwise have been. I feel super uneasy about 13 more days. I mean, it's a short amount of time, but the president is in control. That's how our system works. He controls the military. He gives orders that everybody has to follow. And I hope that if they're not invoking the 25th Amendment, they have a really clear plan for how to do so very quickly, if necessary. And I don't quite know how that would work. But I want some sense that the president can be contained. And that is a really weird thing to say, because he is our leader. It is It is not at all clear, at least when I was following this yesterday, it is not at all clear that the president himself, in fact, authorized the deployment of National Guard troops right. yesterday. So it who, seems like who did it? Pence did that. Yeah, and is that? And it do, would you rather have or the Secretary of Defense? You know, should we be in a situation where the president is in control and his orders are followed, or a situation where there's a subversion by a a faction within his own government? I mean, that's a coup. That's what you. Yesterday we talked about a coup. It's actually a coup when people in the government people act out in extra governmental ways to prevent the actual legitimate government from carrying out its functions. The president is duly elected. He has these responsibilities. He's entitled to do these things. And I'm, of course, I, would, I was glad the National Guard was deployed, but it is also alarming to think that the government, the, the, the people around him, the lickspittles around him, would rather not face it and sneak around and, and subvert the Constitution and subvert it, uh, subvert the government, than to do the thing which they are allowed to do, which is invoke the 25th Amendment. Yeah, that was unsettling. I mean, one, imagine, one imagines that on Wednesday they were filling a vacuum and there was a kind of sense of urgency, obviously. But this brings me to the phone call that Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, over the weekend, pressuring him. I literally to forgot about fun- Literally had forgotten about that until you said. Yeah. Said it. Well, we can't forget about it because it really was uh, a potentially criminal act on the part of the president. I mean, he's very good at sounding like. It's sounding vague enough in a kind of mafia don way that maybe not. It really, in criminal terms, comes down to his state of mind. Like, did he know he was telling Raffensperger to fraudulently overturn the election, or does he actually believe his own bullshit? And in which case, he wouldn't have the right state of mind to be prosecuted. Anyway, it was really an unbelievable phone call. Uh, and what distressed me perhaps the most was that the people around President Trump are aiding and abetting him and stoking his made-up grievances. I mean, you have Mark Meadows on that call. There are other people in the room. And so I feel like there is still this small cluster of people around Trump who are feeding rather than containing him. And 13 more days of that, like, I don't know. That it makes me it makes me worried. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely just because they may not go all the way to the 25th uh, amendment isn't an argument for whether that in fact should be used at the moment. Um, it's that phone call. Imagine now total up all of the effort the president has put towards his own 
lie about the election. Imagine if half of it, if that half of that focus and the effect it has on his supporters were aimed at any of the problems that you outlined earlier, David, maybe even COVID-19, but, but any of the others. I mean, it shows you that when, when he wants to, the president tries to move mountains. And so it's just another reminder that he basically hasn't been doing, hasn't been applying any of that to anything that a president actually should be doing. Right. I mean, although I will say, I will say the irony with this president, he's been incredibly ineffective at overturning the election because, and he's, he, quite possibly cost the Republican Party two Senate seats in Georgia through his efforts. So the idea that he would have applied that, his his uh, his effort to the pandemic, it does not actually make me think the pandemic would be going better. He's an incredibly, right. incredibly right. incompetent person. I wish he was just playing. Right, right. I mean, I would just like him to play golf every day. I think we should right, encourage right, right. him, like uh, to get, let him go play golf every day for the next two weeks. Right. But he should at least get caught trying to uh, fix the thing that three that's killed 350,000 Americans. And also, since there was an identity connection between wearing a mask and not between his supporters. Yes. One thing we did see yes. yesterday is that, is that that channel is open pretty strong. Can I just um, kind of piggyback on what you're saying, David? And, and, and uh, part of this thinking is inspired by Emily's amazing piece about election workers. Can we just for a moment talk about the fact that in the end, it looks like the sandbags held, which is to say the election workers did their work in a pandemic when an, when an overwhelming number of people voted and the local officials, Republicans, basically did their job and certified the votes. The judges did their job and threw out the lame and laughable sometimes claims and basically, in the end, the Congress did its job. It doesn't mean that everything wasn't challenged and stretched. But in the end, the sandbags, the sandbags look like they held. Yeah. I mean, I want to see the actual transition of power on January sure. 30th. <laughs> but yes, I think that it is so important that all these people around the country did their jobs. I mean, you know. Brad Raffensperger has worked for suppressing the vote in Georgia and other circumstances. And, you know, the Georgia Republicans may try to introduce, you know, voter ID for mail-in balloting and take away no excuse mail-in balloting. And that's bad. But on the just very basic bar of, you know, do you make sure that the election was conducted in a fair and free manner and then stand up for the results? Yes, they did that all around the country, and it has proved incredibly crucial. I mean, I will also say that I think it is just very, very lucky for this country that this election did not come down to one or two states. If we're going to have an electoral college, I think that the pressure that would have been brought to bear would have been... Uh, it, I just really am glad yeah. we didn't have to live through that yeah. hypothetical scenario. I think you undersell Brad Raffensperger a little bit. He, of course, he he was no hero to people who believe in expansion of voting rights and believe in that people should be allowed to vote before this election. I think the amount of courage that guy has shown is extraordinary. And there's certain people who have the character to stand up to bullying and stand up to, you know, enormous pressure from friends and allies and the world around them. And it is so hard to do. I know, like, I can't imagine that in similar circumstances that I could have behaved with as much as much courage as he has behaved. I guess what I was, I've <laughs> spent some amount of time just trying to imagine myself into Brad Raffensperger's head, which I realize is like a weird thing to do. But <laughs> you imagine that there's this pressure coming from the, you know, from Trump, from Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who did, I would say, like, Eh, okay in all of this. And then there's all the people who work for you who you're accountable to. And, you know, I also think it is actually like a real strength of our system that we have these secretaries of state, that, that office, and I think we've talked about this, is relatively unsung. It is has been, you know, there are exceptions to this rule, but it has been relatively apolitical. It can be a stepping stone, but it sometimes isn't. And you just have this job of running the election. Like, that is your job. You're supposed to do it the best you can. And then to turn to all these people who worked really hard to make it happen and say, oh, yeah, these completely made up claims that undermine all your work, I'm going to go with that. I mean, yes, he could have done that on the national stage. But one imagines that in his home where he lives, that would have been just a terrible betrayal. Emily, uh, President Trump did issue these tweets, these 
obscene tweets and I think maybe a Facebook post and he'd put out that terrible video and Twitter stopped those tweets and Facebook stopped the postings and Facebook extended what was going to be a 12-hour ban all the way through inauguration. What do you make of that? Do you think that's good? That's great? Do you think it's about fucking time and they should keep him off forever if, if he's going to keep doing that? Well, you know, he's the president, so his message is going to get out. But I actually think it was meaningful and is meaningful because it's his direct line and he seems to be more irresponsible in that direct line than he is when he makes official presidential statements that then get uh, broadcast through the media. And I felt like it was a relief overnight to know that he wasn't going to just pop up with some more incitement. And it's a big deal to, you know, take a world leader off of social media and, you know, it, but it's not as if Trump doesn't have a whole lot of other outlets. He does. So it's really hard to see it as like a, uh, a threat to free expression, in my view, in a short term way. Taking away this access over the next two weeks, if things remain unstable and feel like he is threatening democracy is a pretty important tool that uh, the platforms, you know, we'll see what happens. But I'm glad that they took the step in this instance. Also on Wednesday morning, we got the, you know, in some ways, just as extraordinary news to what was going on in the Capitol, that both Georgia Senate seats will now be held by Democrats as Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won with almost identical vote totals over uh, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, two notably bad and corrupt style Republican candidates who hitched their wagon to Trumpism and lost in this this really remarkable special election. This will give Democrats control of the Senate or split in the Senate with Kamala Harris voting to break any ties that come up. John, are you surprised that here we sit in 2021 with two Democratic senators from Georgia? Yes. I mean, we knew Georgia was always Georgia and Arizona were the states that Democrats would talk about when they talked about the next inroads that they could make, even more so than Texas. And and I was always, you know, a little not skeptical that it wouldn't happen, but skeptical of the timeline. So so in some sense, these are forces that have been going for a while. But, you know, we've seen a lot of partisan adhesion in the Republican Party. And so you would guess that in a traditionally red state, you might, you know, see some rallying around, especially when when Joe Biden is the president elect, because the argument from a Republican standpoint would be, hey, we got to stop these these socialists. And if negative partisanship plays the role in our politics that we know it does, that makes that would have made this race a race not about Donald Trump, but about stopping the socialist Democrats. And that has a power in the Republican Party that is that is its own thing. In other words, it doesn't rely on Donald Trump being on the ticket. So I could have imagined a situation in which both Republicans squeaked it out or it was one and the other. So the fact that it was two Democrats uh, is amazing. It's a testament to the work of the individual campaigns and the candidates, but also obviously Stacey Abrams and all the people who went in Georgia and, you know, where it ain't easy to so easy to vote and and turned out. So it's an amazing, it's a truly amazing thing. And in addition to having the first black man as senator from uh, Georgia is a, a wonderful historical thing, regardless of party. Emily, uh, we, we hope to have Stacey Abrams on the show today. We weren't uh, able to arrange that. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get her, get her someday. But, um, you know, how much credit does she deserve for what happened in Georgia, both in the presidential election and these two Senate races? I mean, look, Stacey would want to share that credit with a lot of other organizers and activists who came before her and worked alongside her. What strikes me is the sort of long game they were playing. I was going back to interviews I did, I think, in like 2013 or so with Stacy and an author and advocate named Steve Phillips, um, who I noticed Stacy thanking this week. And they were talking about this multiracial coalition. So the problem that they had in Georgia, but it's true in a lot of states, is that black politicians normally emerge from urban strongholds, and then they can become mayor or 
congressional representatives, but they don't get to run for statewide office because there's this assumption on the part of Democratic donors and, you know, other party leaders that they can't attract enough of a coalition to run statewide. So you don't get to be governor, you don't get to be senator. You are representing a more narrow slice of people who look like you. And Stacey was just determined that that was not going to be her own path and was making a bigger argument that there had to be a way for donors to give candidates of color a chance to build these statewide coalitions. And it's not about, you know, representing only black people. I mean, Stacey was talking the last few weeks about how, you know, there's been the slogan, trust black women. And of course, like it has a lot of wonderful, like recognition in it. But she was saying that she wants people to see that it's broader than that. Like, it's not just that. There's a way in which she frames issues that are always about crossing all these boundaries. And that's what you have to do in the United States to win statewide office, just given our racial and ethnic composition. And that was super far-sighted. It was something that it took her quite a while to convince party leaders to really support and it's a driver just as much as the voter registration efforts of her of her success. And I think we saw in Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, these candidates who were really like taking a page from that playbook, right? They run, ran as unapologetic liberals, but it was not narrow slice politics. It was not grievance politics. It was about, you know, trying to make this bigger coalition. And it their success, like I think Democrats can really revel in the fact that they ran the way they did and won. It, it's when you look at leadership and the role of individual people, the, what you're describing feels like basically an intellectual scoop uh, or what we used to call an intellectual scoop on Stacey Abrams' part. And the yes. figuring out the approach and then following it is, um, uh, you know, somebody will do a, a fantastic and interesting study about the ability to make change that way. And at the heart of it is this... Um, inspiring belief in the power of the American system. You know, in the interviews I was doing during the campaign, you know, I would interview, in this case, it was young Latino organizers. And and one of them I talked to believed in the American dream was being thwarted because she had lost her jobs that were going to pay for college, but believed basically in the idea if she worked hard, went to college, it would all work out. The other organizers that I talked to said the American dream is a myth. It's basically a myth that that blocks the road for those by by erecting more hurdles and then through the myth of meritocracy says, why haven't you cleared these incredible hurdles we put up in front of you? And yet the people who were making that case were out knocking on doors. In other words, they believed that the system could be, in fact, changed. And as we saw people thought who thought yesterday that change could only come by breaking the windows of the Capitol and storming Congress, you have this other approach, which is to organize and do it through, uh, you know, the the right way, which has which bore fruit this week too. So it was a nice, or not a nice, but a but a, a wonderful balance to the other way uh, of people trying to make change through violence. What states do you think are amenable to the Stacey Abrams project? It seems to me, at looking at it, that North Carolina is obviously amenable to that. Both the, both the voter registration and the kind of broader coalition piece you describe. Um, Florida might be. Texas might be. Uh, anywhere else? I mean, I think Arizona, you've already seen the same kind right. of movement. Yeah. Uh, those are the obvious ones to me. Sometimes Jamel Bowie talks about South Carolina as coming along, uh, potentially, although I would imagine that's a longer term project. So let's talk now about what a 50 seat Democratic Senate can do and what it can't do. So what what can it hope to do, John, obviously? And Emily, what can it not hope to do? I'll go briefly because I'm not quite sure. I mean, what I wonder is whether in 2000, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle worked out a power sharing arrangement where the Republicans had the chairmanships of the committees, but the Democrats, it was a 50-50 split with Cheney breaking the tie. But the Democrats had a lot of control that they wouldn't otherwise have had as just the simple, plain minority. So I wonder how that all is going to get sorted between Schumer and McConnell. You know, this makes some things easier for Biden, confirmations and that kind of thing. The question is, who will, will there be a moderate swing coalition of Manchin, Collins, Murkowski, 
um, Romney cinema that that tries to assert itself. And if that existed, that should be right in Joe Biden's wheelhouse. Like that's a Senate that he believes in, which could be very interesting, but obviously will will bring a lot of heartburn to activists who will want to see progress of a more um, robust nature than anything that would be able to pass through a Senate controlled by that kind of coalition. Yeah, I mean, they can confirm judges. That's really important. They can confirm cabinet appointees. They can pass through budget reconciliation, spending bills with only 50 votes. And then what they cannot do unless they eliminate the filibuster is voting rights and D.C. statehood and Puerto Rican statehood and these kind of structural reform questions unless they're willing to change the rules of the Senate. Now, you know, there's people are talking about like, well, could you eliminate the filibuster just for like a special class of bills and get Joe Manchin to take one hard vote? And then the new senators from D.C. or Puerto Rico could run with the ball and he'd be off the hook. I don't know. I that might be sort of too clever by half. But budget reconciliation is a very big deal. I mean, you know, if you pass a huge omnibus spending bill, like the one that Congress did just succeed in pass, you can do a lot to address economic woes and economic inequality, which is, you know, such a continuing problem for the country. Right. Although you, you really can't address these structural problems with democracy through it. Right. So that that does seem problematic. John, do you think there's any chance they ditch the filibuster? I, hard to see Manchin, Manchin going for uh, that right now. No, I don't. Because, no, I don't, I don't think they do it. I don't. If you're Joe Biden and you believe in the Senate, which he must still believe in the Senate because of what we've heard him say and because that's the institution that he spent the most time in, you, you, will, you could see opportunity to get things done through you know, a coalition. And if you got rid of the filibuster, it would set all, it would give Republicans a thing to rally around. Again, I'm seeing, I'm speaking in voice as Joe Biden or as a kind of Senate institutionalist, that that would be a, um, a uh, that would set all the Republicans against you basically for the rest of your um, term. Now, a lot of progressives would say, yeah, well, they're set against you anyway. So deal with the politics of the reality, not the politics you would like to see. And that'll be something we're going to talk about 80 billion times between now and the end of the Biden presidency is that push and pull. But I guess my point is, if you think of it from Joe Biden's perspective, the, 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 the aggressiveness of getting rid of the filibuster would, I could imagine him seeing it closing off all kinds of other opportunities of things that he might want to try and pass through a Senate that in his mind operates close to the one that he used to be a member of. I mean, what I don't what I don't get, though, with the theory of like the, oh, we're, we're going to get Collins and Romney. So, OK, you get Collins and Romney, maybe Murkowski. That's three votes to do what if you, you, you don't need three votes, you need 10 votes. Yeah. I guess it's really just political cover. Then you can claim bipartisan support. Yeah. Political cover to like do very to minimal things. Yeah. But to David's point, you still need the 60 votes. So. Right. You get bipartisan and then you, I mean, some people will say, well, you have to look like you're trying to do bipartisan things first to prove the system's broken and then you can go do the stuff you want to do. That was yeah, Obama's. The clock is ticking, man. You don't have very much time. That was Obama's approach and the clock is ticking. You're exactly right. And also, it would be interesting, David, to, and I'm sure the New York Times or Washington Post will have this tomorrow, is to draw the 60. How do you get from 50 to 60? Who are the easiest ones to get uh, on the way there. Um, For what? By the way, you need more to get to 60 votes to pass anything. Yeah, like, I don't none. think there it's, is it's a 60 not doable. vote coalition. It's not doable. It there, doesn't exist. There's yeah. like 52 well, or three, and then there's like 90. Yeah. Well, of course it exists. I mean, there are things that pass, you know, with more than 60 votes, no, but, it's, but it's, nothing that's, um, nothing that's, you know, truly uh, contentious. Yeah. Um, Republicans are not going right. to give Democrats any win at 60. That's, that's ridiculous, John. We've history well, of course, they'll give them wins. They just won't give them substantive wins. No, I mean, it's. I think it's. I, th- I thought you were going to go into more different, which is what does it take to get from fifty votes in the Senate to sixty? Which is also a. It's a metaphysical impossibility for Democrats. Uh, well, I mean, they had a, the president of the United States doesn't believe that. So, and he's and he's going to try. No, so. I mean to win six to hold sixty, to win sixty seats the way that Obama had sixty. Oh no seats. no 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 no. I mean I mean yeah. Oh I see. I, yeah. I'm talking about um, you know on something like infrastructure. Um, 
Uh, could but if he, there was going to be a coalition, wouldn't it be more likely that you would have like 80 or 90 votes, right? Like yeah, everybody okay, comes but, on board or. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's you get 53 or 83. I, I will I will stand here and say there is not a single substantive bill will pass this Congress with 80 votes. There will be some substantive well, bills that pass with 50, maybe 52. Nothing will pass with 80 because Demo- Republicans are not going to say. Oh yeah, let's let's have a big infrastructure bill. We really support that, and which Biden is going to get credit for. Sure, they're not going to do sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. No, I, I mean, no. I I wrote many chapters of my book saying what you're saying, so I can't possibly disagree with you. Nevertheless, Joe Biden is operating under the theory that he can get past things with more than sixty votes. So, uh, good luck to him. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. If anyone of us does not need a cocktail this week. They are a remarkable person. Um, <laughs> have a have a cocktail, have a non-alcoholic cocktail, have some something that will cause you to relax and and like take your mind off of the the horror that's happening to our country here in here in the capital. Emily, what is your chatter? My chatter is a tweet from Kyle Matrulis about what he calls the most important competitive dog dancing video you will ever see. Apparently, this is called in the industry. I did not know there was a dog dancing industry. He'll work (laughs) to music. And Kyle Matulis links to this crazy video that goes on forever of this woman doing a dance routine with her dog. And it's really (laughs) what's so charming about it, at least to me, is that mostly, like, they're really not doing anything. Like, the dog is just running, like, going between the legs of the human, something dogs love to do, is like a trick they repeat a hundred times. But then there are these crazy moments where, like, there actually is more real sort of coordinated dancing going on, and I really, really enjoyed this video. It was an excellent, delightful relief and respite from the rest of the week. Can you send that over now? Can you text that over? I will. John, top that. Uh, I Everybody's probably already seen this by now because it happened while we were in our um, end-of-the-year hiatus, but the, the Pompeii hot food stall that was found, um, if you haven't uh, looked at the pictures, they're really extraordinary. That Basically, researchers found a... Um, and I don't know how you pronounce it, whether it's thermopolium or thermopolium. Um, anyway, it's a basically it was a hot it was a fast food stand in the Roman city of Pompeii, which everybody knows was buried in um, two thousand years ago in volcanic ash. But it is extraordinary when you look at it, and I don't want to ruin it for people. But the freshness of the the paintings and then the way it is constructed. You know, one of the things that is so creepy and fascinating uh, about Pompeii is that it was frozen in time. And so there are bodies in the kind of the position they were in when the ash fell. And this is very much, to my mind anyway, something that you can envision as an operational thing from 2000 years ago. And, and usually you have to kind of wrinkle your mind a little bit to, to, to look at a piece of archaeology and see how it would have been used. This, you didn't have to do that much work, and therefore it felt rather transporting. Do they know what it served? Is it like breakfast tacos or... <laughs> um, brought ma- yeah, well, mac- they've, Mackums, they, big they, um, Mackums? They, they, they found crushed beans... They found goat, pig, fish, and snails in these earthen pots, sometimes con- uh, combined in the same dish. So I'm thinking a kind of a bouillabaisse um, <laughs> situation going on. So, um, yeah, they did have some sense of what was, was in there. Um, and, uh, I mean, again, it's just, have either of you ever been to Pompeii? No. no. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's also in an incredibly beautiful part of Italy, which might sound redundant, but um, it's on the way down to the, um, uh, to the Amalfi coast, which is not a bad drive. And, um, and someday maybe we'll be able to go to such places again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my, my chat, you guys had such an inspirational chatters. Mine is so, <laughs> I, I guess I'm going with the spirit of the day. Uh, New York times story about the, extraordinarily contentious and ugly divorce between Farkad Akhmedov and Tatyana Akhmedova 
Farkad Akhmadov is a Russian billionaire who recently, or not that recently, divorced Tatyana Akhmadova, and she won in British court a $600 million settlement from him, which he's refused to pay any of. And there was an amazing period when her yacht, where the, where, where the yacht the couple owned was impounded in Dubai or Qatar or something, and she was supposed to get possession of it, but he prevented her from getting possession of it by invoking Sharia law somehow. And basically, he's turned over nothing to her. Uh, she still seems to live pretty high on the hog. She must have, she's, she's having some other resources. And so what has she done? She has sued her own son. She sued her own son for $100 million, saying that he's basically part of the conspiracy to keep her assets from her keep her $600 million from her. And he lives in London, whereas her, her ex-husband lives in, in Russia. And so because he lives in London, she wants to get those assets of his, saying that they are ill-gotten gains, essentially, that belong to her. And so you have this unbelievably ugly spectacle of a mother suing her son. And they have terrible things to say about each other. And it's a portrait of horrible rich people and the horrible lives that they live. It is truly the the feel-bad, malicious story of the week if you don't want to look at the U.S. Capitol as the real feel-bad, malicious story of the week. Listeners, also, you sent us an amazing array of chatters. Please keep them coming. Uh, they're so good. They are, they are inspirational. They, have, they are full of light and joy. And I want to point to one that Saruz Faravar sent us. Amazing. Did you guys see this? It was, we were all tweeted. We were all kind of included on this tweet. It is a link to a story on uh, Jason Kotke's blog, which is that the last Civil War widow just died. There's a woman who just died at the age of 101 who was a widow of a Civil War soldier. She, at the age of 17, married a 90-year-old man. This is back in 1936. She married James Bolin, who was 93, and she sort of helped take care of him. And she, you know, she married. He died soon after. And then she went on to live another 84 years and just died. And didn't he end up getting, she was able to get his pension, right? Yes. Isn't although what's an amazing did? part of the story, she never took the pension. She, oh, nice. She did it. She did it. She did it uh, just out of kindness somehow. But there was an, but this then linked <laughs> to an incredible other story, which is that the last person being paid a Civil War pension also died this year. Right, I saw that. Which is this summer, uh, a woman died at the age of 90, I think. Her father, Irene Triplett is her name, her father had been a Civil War veteran. Uh, she had been born late, very late in his life. Um, and she was born with, with severe handicaps of some sort. I didn't dig into what they were. And as a disabled child, she was eligible for his Civil War pension. So until this June, she was being paid $73.13 every month by the Department of Veteran Affairs. So to think that the Civil War, we were literally paying for the Civil War in this year's federal budget is a stunning, stunning thought. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the GapFest. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Our conundrum comes to us from a listener in New Haven, Emily Bazelon. Ms. Bazelon, what is your question? <laughs> You're going to mispronounce my name, just as like making me a Twitter user. This um, question actually comes from my son, Simon. So knowing everything you know now about science and medicine, what is the year in which you would first choose to go to a doctor if you were sick? Would you go in 1800, in 1900, in, I don't know, 1948? Would you go in 1700? Does it depend what kind of ailment you have? Yeah, does it depend what kind of... It definitely depends on what kind of ailment you have. Do you want to specify the ailment? No, I think we can talk about a variety of ailments. Like, yeah. say you have a fever and kind of other ill-defined flu-like symptoms. We could start with something like that. Well, first of all, I think there is actually a period 
in the classical era where you might have actually gone to doctors, where it might have been good to go to a healer. You mean like Athens? Yeah, that where, okay. where I think there was knowledge that was lost. The ancient Greeks. Yeah, there may have been. I'm not certain about that, but I feel like that my, my vague sense of history says there was a period, you know, 2,000 years ago where there was people who could have helped you. But let's, let's, let's skip that. I, so, so one of the things that I learned about recently that made me very surprised was that anesthesia existed and worked in the mid-19th century. I had always thought of anesthesia as being really being like a 20th century invention, but all these Civil War surgeries were done under anesthesia, that there was anesthesia, and that surgery, certain kinds of thir- surgery, including amputation, was pretty effective, even though they didn't have a great concept of sepsis. They had a terrible concept of sepsis. Uh, they were still, because they act, they moved, they operated really quickly, and the surgeons became very expert during the Civil War. Lots of people who were amputated survived their amputations and and lived long lives afterwards. So I think if I were, if I had a gangrenous wound, I would have been like, yeah, happily, I would go to a doctor uh, in 1861. Um, but a lot of those people died because they got infections, because they weren't yeah, washing a, their hands or cleaning the instruments. But a lot more right. would have died. Okay, because so they your got their odds were better. Off. Yeah. Okay. Your odds were better for that particular thing. I don't know about... But it, it, do you think that any time before antibiotics, you just wouldn't have wanted to go to a doctor? I don't um, think that's true. I'm tempted in that direction. And well, antibiotics is like the 1940s, right? Widespread. I mean, early, I think it's discovered before that, but it's not really yes. used widespreadly until post-war. Yeah, discovered in 1928, it looks like. But yeah, that seems like not when they started prescribing it generally. Well, I mean, I think if you had to get like a boil lanced or something, I think you're... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.